Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Gold, the stuff of pirate treasures, fairy tales, wedding rings, also the focus of alchemy, the medieval forerunner of chemistry in its quest to transform matter. Surprisingly, perhaps, in modern times, gold is a metal, an element whose origins have still been surrounded by a bit of mystery. How is gold made? How did gold get on Earth? And why is gold more rare than other metals on Earth, say iron? Seems like questions we should have answered long ago. It turns out my next guest is a young scientist who recently settled a long-standing question about the origin of gold and other heavy elements in our universe. In this half hour, we explore that mystery with Brian Metzger. Brian grew up along the Mississippi in Burlington. He studied math and physics at the University of Iowa, went on to receive his Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley, awarded a NASA Einstein Fellowship, also did his postdoctoral work at Princeton, is currently a professor of physics at Columbia University in New York City and a senior research scientist at the Flat Iron Institute. In 2020, Brian received the prestigious Lavatnik Award for his research into the origins of gold in the universe. Brian joins us from his office at Columbia University in New York City. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You are a theoretical astrophysicist. Introduce us, before we get to the gold thing, <laughs> introduce us, please, to your area of focus in this field. I understand you are interested in your words. You say it is the explosive universe. What is that? Well, broadly, astrophysics is, of course, the study of everything you know outside of, of the Earth. And uh, we, we break down that field you know, into kind of two uh, types of scientists. We have the observers who go out with big telescopes and, and measure things, events or, or objects like galaxies and stars or explosions. And then we have, you know, theorists uh, who try to interpret that given the known laws of physics. We try to understand what we're seeing and maybe even make predictions for it. So I'm of the latter type. I'm a, a theoretical astrophysicist. And my particular specialty is, as you say, the explosive universe. So trying to understand the birth and death of stars and the, the compact objects that they create when they die, so black holes and neutron stars. That's one area of my research. And then another is understanding, which is very closely connected to that, the origin of the elements. Where do uh, the elements that make up the periodic table come from? Many of them are produced, as Carl Sagan said, you know, it, it, it's star stuff. Uh, we are made of star stuff. So many of them are produced in stars when they explode. Uh, but more exotic events are required to produce the heaviest elements. You know, one, one of my recent interests is trying to understand where the, the heaviest elements like gold, silver, and platinum come from in our universe and what types of cataclysmic events uh, may give rise to the conditions that enable these elements to be produced. You theorized how gold was created in our universe and uh, your prediction that was confirmed not too long ago. Where do we start with this story? Maybe we could start from the fact that 
you know, we have a pretty good understanding where the lighter elements come from, the elements of life, even up to iron. We know that these are formed in, you know, massive stars and expelled into space when they explode as supernova. But it turns out it's much harder to create elements that are much heavier than iron. What you need to do is you need to take an iron nucleus and you need to bombard it at a very high rate with neutrons. So, but as, as you may know, uh, or may, maybe don't know, neutrons are unstable. They actually decay in a vacuum away into protons in about 10 minutes. And so in order to create the heaviest elements, we need a site in nature where there's a very high abundance of neutrons. And this has led us, uh, led a lot of people to, to think about these objects called neutron stars. Um, so neutron stars are the cores of stars that are left over, big stars much larger than our sun. At, at the end of their life, when they explode, they, they birth these neutron stars. They, neutron stars have about the mass of our sun, but confined to a size of about New York City, uh, so, so 10 kilometers or so. And, and we think that these neutron stars may be critical to, to creating the conditions that give rise to these heavy elements. And in particular, the collision between uh, two of these neutron stars, which is a very rare event in our universe. Uh, but we think that the, the collision of these neutron stars has long been hypothesized to be a site where these heavy elements could be produced. And so the, the story really starts, well, it's, it starts a long time ago, but it's, but it's come to a climax recently in 2017. Uh, there was the first detection, direct detection of these two colliding uh, neutron stars. Um, and we detected it in a very atypical way. Most of the time we, we detect things by pointing our telescopes to them. In this case, the two colliding neutron stars were detected through their gravitational wave emission. So as these neutron stars get closer and closer together, they, these are very massive objects. They're strongly distorting the space and time around them, and they can create these ripples that, uh, believe it or not, propagate out from the site where these stars are merging. And believe it or not, we can actually detect them now on Earth. There are these uh, gravitational wave observatories. There are two in the United States, one in Washington State and one in Louisiana. And uh, the name of the experiment is LIGO, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And this LIGO observatory in 2017, for the first time, detected these colliding neutron stars, not with telescopes, but with their gravitational waves. But they um, immediately told the astronomers of the world, okay, there was a merging neutron star system in that part of the sky right now. You should point your telescopes over there. And that's what a large fraction of our community did. Uh, there are many of the biggest telescopes in our world, uh, in, in, in the world, pointed towards the direction of this neutron star merger. And what they saw was a, a fading glow of light uh, that lasted about a week. And it, it, was in a, it was in a galaxy that it was actually fairly close by, uh, by astronomical terms. It was 130 million light years away. But uh, essentially what I did was, was to make predictions for the appearance of that light, like how bright it was, what color it was, and to connect the signal we saw to the formation of these heavy elements like gold, silver, and platinum in the ejecta, the matter that was uh, released into space when these neutron stars collided. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about your prediction. You said the color of this, the, the specific area that you predicted, because I understand the color, uh, even from that vast difference distance, you can, you, it, it tells you what elements are being created. Yeah. Um, it turns out that the color of the stellar explosions that create some of the heaviest elements uh, are much redder uh, than ordinary stellar explosions. So one of the hints that this event um, 
produced these heavy elements was actually in the in the very red color. And it has to do with the very complex nature of these heavy elements and uh, um, and, and the way that they absorb ultraviolet light. Um, so, so I made predictions about that. Um, uh, maybe I should should step back a little bit and explain why we see light at all from the production of these elements. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so as I mentioned, the the way you create these gold is you take an iron nucleus, which is fairly easy to create in these explosions, and you bombard it with neutrons, and in this way you create a very heavy element. Uh, but it's it's radioactive; it's not a stable element. Uh, so, so you've created all of this radioactive waste uh, during the early stages of this explosion, and now you're expelling this radioactive waste into space. And as we know, uh, radioactive waste decays. It's, it, it actually releases a lot of energy. This is the, the basis for you know, fission uh, energy production. Um, and, and so the energy that was released by the radioactive decay of this newly freshly formed gold, if you will, was what caused this event to glow. It was the light that we saw, the power source, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so these colliding neutron stars basically create a bunch of, of radioactive uh, heavy elements, disperse them into space, and I made predictions for you know how bright that event would be, what you know what would what would be how bright it was, how long it would last, and, and also the the specific colors. So how whether how much you know optical light it would produce. Uh, sorry, uh, red light versus blue light. Let's put it that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And in reading about your research, uh, Brian, um, there's this term that uh, run into that most people, I assume, will not know. We know supernova, a star going supernova, but there is a kilonova involved in that process. What is that? Right. So when we did the first, I should say, we, we did these calculations uh, back in 2010 uh, when I was just uh, at Princeton, beginning my postdoc at, uh, work at Princeton. Um, and when we did the calculations, the prediction was that these events would be about a thousand times brighter than an ordinary nova. So there are also events in addition to supernova, there are also ordinary nova in our galaxy. Uh, and this event was about a thousand times brighter than that. And so that's the prefix kilo. So we gave it the name kilo nova uh, as a result of how bright it was. Um, and, and that name has essentially stuck. So, so now it's sort of taken on, this term has taken on its, its, its own character and, and people use it to describe the whole phenomena when originally it was, uh, you know, a specific model for the, the light that would be produced from this event. But that, that's, you know, that's essentially what, exactly what you said. A supernova is the explosion of a massive star and a kilonova is the light we see from the collision of two neutron stars. Mm -hmm. If you just joined us, my guest, theoretical astrophysicist Brian Metzger, now a professor of physics at Columbia University in New York City. We're talking about the, the recognition he's got, he's received for his research into the origins of gold and other heavy elements in our universe. So where, you, you told the story about this, uh, this event, a uh, neutron star, these, this neutron star merger in 2017, August of 2017. Were you actually, uh, of course, to, to say that you witnessed it or, or measured it in real time is, is a twist of time because this happened 130 million years ago, right? The light reaching us? It, it did, but it, it plays itself at the right, at right speed. So it happened a long time ago, but, but we see it unfold at, at, at the same, same, same pace. Um, uh, but, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's true. I, I, I was not, uh, so I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, so I make the models and I don't, go to the big telescopes and take that data myself mm. but I work with the observational astronomers who do that data and 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 this was actually a worldwide secret LIGO uh, 
for various reasons, was, was quite secretive about its discoveries, but it was telling the astronomers who had to have this imme information immediately to be able to point their telescopes there. And so there were astronomers who were taking the data and seeing the, the, this kilonova uh, uh, fading, and, and, and it was starting to leak to me, and I started to be involved with some of those groups. And so it was really an, an amazing feeling when you see that this prediction you've made in, in sort of a vacuum of, of, of theory and thinking about it, a uh, uh, very exotic event that we've never seen before, and then seeing it unfold basically in real time over the course of a, of a few days uh, was, was quite exciting. And people telling you it looks a lot like your, your predictions. Um, and, and so that's, you know, at that point, this was the first time we had directly witnessed the synthesis of these very heaviest elements in the universe. And so fascinating. Uh, yeah. And it, so, so anyone listening, looking at a, a gold wedding band, all of that gold that we have on earth right now was created through the merger of neutron stars. We think most, most of it or a good, a good chunk of it. I wouldn't say we have, we have, we have one event, so it's a little hard to extrapolate that to, to say all, you know, with confidence to say all of it. But, but I think this event shows us that these are, that it's a it's it's in high likelihood a, a good fraction of, of of our gold and platinum came from these types of events. Mm -hmm. but, so the way I describe it, you know, uh, uh, to, to my wife, it, you know, my my wedding band, which which has some platinum in my, I'm I'm comp, you know fairly confident that this was at one point very close to falling into a black hole, <laughs> the material, <laughs> because after these neutron stars merge, the matter that doesn't get expelled, that doesn't create the gold, yeah. ends up going into a black hole. So. I mentioned, uh, Brian, I mentioned to alchemy, the medieval forerunner of chemistry uh, based on this supposed transformation of matter that, you know, existed hundreds of years ago to, uh, well, one of the main focuses to convert base metals into gold. It, would we, Do we know how to do this? Could, is it possible to do this on Earth? Uh, it, it is possible. It's just not very economical. So, so you, you can, uh, you know, you can you can create a, a in, in some ways uh, a sort of the, the reproduce the conditions inside a neutron star merger on earth not not as extreme and, and and not exactly the same conditions but you can transform elements into other elements in the laboratory on earth it's just that the amount of energy and and cost that goes into it is is not worth worth the amount of of, of value you would create by 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 creating those precious metals so so we can actually in, in our labs uh uh, can, in some sense, perform uh, the alchemy that people were seeking a long time ago. It just isn't a very uh, economical endeavor. Um, mm -hmm. Well, it's been fascinating, and what a pleasure to, to hear from you, to have you explain your research. Thank you, um, Brian Metzger, professor of physics at Columbia University, senior research scientist at the Flatiron Institute, and a recipient of the prestigious Blavatnik Award for his research into the origins of gold and other heavy elements in the universe. Thank you so much, Brian. Pleasure. Today, you've been listening to an Encore edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Today, we feature an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. 
It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. I'm joined by IPR's Cassidy Arena. We want to discuss her remarkable reporting on a Marshalltown family that almost lost their home over Iowa's little-known quiet title law. Cassidy, so nice to have you back on the program. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. So this story, we want to remind our listeners, comes from the Midwest Newsroom. That's an investigative journalism collaboration, and uh, this is really some great investigative journalism. It took you many months to uh, report on this, some real fine digging. Uh, You opened our eyes to a practice that many of us are completely unaware of. It's hard to believe, but a law in Iowa that allowed someone to claim the title of a house without the owner's knowledge. Tell us the story. Yeah, so um, it all goes back to what's called, um, in Iowa, the actual law is called quieting title law. Um, but, you know, the the thing itself is a quiet title, um, and it's not very well known among, you know, people like me and maybe non-homeowners or even homeowners. Um, but as we'll probably hear later, it is well known among other um, people in the legal practice. Um, but it's, it's something that is not, you know, unique to Iowa, um, but it is... However, um, the way that it has kind of been practiced in Iowa um, is what kind of caught my attention here. Um, and, and how it all started was uh, when I met uh, Maria Kendall. Uh, she told me about the story of it starts out in probably one of the most mundane ways you can think of, something that you and I do probably whenever we're bored, um, going to look on Zillow, see what see what's around, see what homes are for sale. Mm-hmm. And it turns out she actually saw her own mother's house for sale. That's a surprise. Uh, and she had no knowledge of it. And, and what did she do? Yeah, so she immediately calls her sister and her mom, who are out in California. Her mom uh, moved out to California temporarily and, you know, came back to Iowa every summer and said, hey, you know, I didn't know you decided to sell the house. And their response was, nope, we no, this house is not for sale. You know, it's still mom's house. What are you talking about? Uh, And so that led the family to realize that the house's title had been switched over to somebody else through, you know, what I had mentioned earlier, through what's called a quieting title petition or a quiet title petition. Um, And so that basically allows for anybody who shows an interest in the property um, to petition a quiet title and essentially saying, I want you to quiet the title or kind of push down or push away the title of that previous owner and switch over the title so that it's under my name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, along with that, uh, the law isn't necessarily very clear about what an interest has to look like mm-hmm. uh, specifically. Um, and so the family, you know, decided to, they said that this was, wasn't going to happen. So they went to, um, hired an attorney, went to court, you know, and then, you know, all the court proceedings followed that. Eventually, they did end up getting the title back. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the family just shared that, you know, the whole ordeal was pretty painful for them. Yeah. Um, all of their previous belongings in the house had been thrown out. They don't have those belongings anymore, including family photos. Um, and so they decided to just sell the house, you know, and get get the the funds that came from that sale and then kind of move on from their lives. Let me back up and make sure we're getting this straight, Cassidy. So uh, when Maria Kendall was just looking on Zillow, just kind of shopping for homes or for pleasure or whatever, she comes across her mother's house. 
It says it's for sale, but then the title has already been transferred, so her mother actually legally doesn't have the title to the house anymore? That's what she discovers? At that point in time, yes. The title was not under her mother, whose name is Natalia Esteban. Uh, It wasn't under Natalia Esteban's name. And the reason why um, the courts ended up siding with the petitioner is because um, the petitioner had claimed she couldn't find Natalia Esteban. um, And she had followed the the way that the law um, says the process needs to go with a public notice. Um, So published the notice of the petition in the local newspaper in Marshalltown. Um, but the center here is, one, uh, Natalia Esteban doesn't actually speak English. Um, mm-hmm. So that was one hurdle there. She would not have um, understood or or even, even started to read the, the newspaper because it's not in Spanish. And then also the fact that, you know, she was not in Iowa at the time. So, of course, she wasn't reading that newspaper, let alone the public notice section. Um, and so in the way, you know, courts go is uh, they did not show up to the court hearing and therefore it was a default judgment um, in the favor of the petitioner. The petitioner you name here, Catherine Gooding, a person named Catherine Gooding, um, she, from her perspective, how, uh, and I understand she wasn't willing to go on the record. She and her attorney were not willing to talk with you for, for this report. Yes, that is correct. Uh, so, you know, a little bit, we don't know much about her. Uh, what we could gather was just from public documents, court documents and city documents. Um, and we found that she is has acquired uh, uh, more than 40 properties um, in and around Marshalltown. And then we also found that she has filed at least, uh, as, as far as the court documents go, um, at least, you know, more than 15, around 15 to 18 quiet titles. Um, for properties around Marshalltown and, and in the city itself. Mm-hmm. Cassidy, we know, of course, you cover Iowa's Latino and Spanish-speaking communities for IPR, and Marshalltown, we're proud to say, is a, a prominent uh, Spanish-speaking community in, in Iowa. And, and so are you getting the sense when you kind of opened, um, zoomed out and looked at other cases, looked at court uh, at uh, records here that um, you said Natalie Esteban uh, w- was not an English speaker, that this is partic- happening in particular to uh, those who are, are non-English speakers? Of course, it is a little bit hard to make that judgment off of just simply a name um, in a court document. Uh, so, you know, you can't, we can't say in particular that um, it, there were uh, people that did not speak English that were um, being, you know, being petitioned um, necessarily, but we can say that the way that the law is being practiced, it really doesn't offer any sort of um, protections for somebody who doesn't speak English, um, and, and neither does the notice of publication. That doesn't really do anything um, to, to help out people who don't speak English either. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, my guest this half hour, uh, Cassidy Arena, of course, of IPR, and uh, she's uh, talking about uh, months uh, of work that resulted in ju- a fine work of, of journalism uh, coming from the Midwest Newsroom. That's an investigative journalism collaboration that Cassidy is is part of. And it's uh, an amazing story of a, um, how a Marshalltown family almost lost their home over Iowa's little-known uh, so-called quiet title law. Well, uh, let's also add to our conversation now Drake University law professor Natalie Linner. Uh, welcome to you, Natalie. Hi, thanks for having me. 
You've been listening to this story. I know you were well aware of it. You were, in fact, part of this story as uh, Cassidy covered it here. Um, Tell us a little bit more about how widespread this this use of the law is, or, or perhaps we can start even better by giving us a little bit of the background of why this law was created and what the thinking behind it was. Sure. So this is not quite a law in and of itself as a way to transfer property. It, in fact, is a cause of action for a court to resolve a dispute about ownership. And the difficulty that we face is that there are many disputes that could arise over over ownership. There could be property boundary disputes, surveying errors, concerns about easements, mechanics liens, perhaps an estate sale. So the reason why it was so hard to determine what are these interests that would justify a quiet title action is that it takes three years of law school and many more years of practice to really determine and to use, understand what property interests could convey title um, and when people will have a claim in a quiet title action. Mm-hmm. The story we heard that Cassidy uncovered there um, it seems unbelievable. How, how common, how widespread is that? Someone's title is transferred without even the owner's knowledge. I just think it's awful that this happened to uh, this family. And I think I see two problems with the way the law was used here. The first, obviously, is the notice problem. We have a constitutional protection that private property cannot be taken without due process of law. Mm -hmm. And due process requires notice. That notice needs to be reasonable under the circumstances to inform all the interested parties that a lawsuit like this is going to affect their interest and take their home. And this notice that occurred here with publication in the Marshalltown newspaper, I don't think is reasonable under the circumstances to notify our defendant. Mm -hmm. So what would that have looked like in the Marshalltown newspaper? Back to you, Cassidy. Can you tell us about what would have, because we all know in newspapers that there's by law certain things have to be printed um, at certain times, and this is one of those sort of small print ads that one would typically see, Cassidy. Yeah, um, you know it, it's pretty uh, basic. Um, it's pretty an, a narrow column uh, in the newspaper, and um, it starts out, you know, by just saying "public notice," uh, you know, because that's what it is. And it's from the Iowa District Court for Marshall County. In this case, Marshalltown is in Marshall County. It just lists the case number, which is the number that the court will recognize this case by. Um, and then it, you know, lists the basics. Who's the plaintiff? Who's the defendant? And then just letting the defendant know that the defendant has been notified, there's been a petition filed. And, you know, it kind of goes into all of the details and it finishes off with, you know, please reach out, please, you know, seek legal advice. Um, and there you go. Mm-hmm. And the, the owner, uh, Natalia Esteban, was also named in that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it lists out Natalia Esteban as one of the defendants and then also her, her then husband um, who did move back to Mexico. Um, so it, it was her uh, who was the you know owner of the house. 
Um, and uh, Natalie of Drake University um, Law College uh, there. So you're saying it sure seems like something needs to be fixed here because um, uh, Natalia Esteban is, is way out in another state, and this gets processed without her knowledge. And the, the fix here, in your opinion, is? So I think that the judge needed to have more judicial scrutiny in ensuring that the petitioner had done a diligent inquiry in trying to contact her. Uh, So the publication that we rely on is an old provision in law, and it just doesn't make sense in our modern digital society. Cassidy had no problem finding the defendant here, so I think that the, the judge should require, especially in a default case, more evidence that the petitioner tried uh, to find the defendant. That's just what's reasonable. Mm-hmm. And, and Natalie, what can, I mean, we know Catherine Gooding um, was unwilling uh, to be a part of this report uh, when Cassidy reached out. Uh, thoughts on, on her, because this is evidently something that she has practiced uh, several other times um, uh, without, a, without a lot of knowledge about what she's been doing, her side of the story, what can be said? Yeah, I find it very suspicious. I don't understand why she has all of these property interests that could be recognized under the law in Marshalltown. The one legal doctrine that allows you to transfer title is called adverse possession. And you just need to actually possess and use that property exclusively for 10 years in Iowa. And you need to have good faith with a reasonable mistake and belief that this land is yours. So in this case, she lived there for two years. She maybe put up new curtains or improved the land and tried to pay the tax bill. But that does not give you title to the property. So, again, this isn't coming on the court. There needed to be more judicial scrutiny, especially in a default case, to show a property interest sufficient to take title. Mm-hmm. Cassidy, you spoke with the director of Marshalltown's Housing and Community Development. What did you find out from her? Yeah, um, so Michelle Sponheimer, um, and this is something that she has been aware of. Um, she said that the Esteban family is not the first family that she's heard of having um, a similar situation. I, I don't know who the petitioner was in those other cases, um, but she did say at least three other families had similar situations that did reach out to the city kind of asking, you know, what what's happening here? Uh, what's going on? Um, so She's very aware of it. Um, it's something that um, Marshalltown city officials also want to do is is start planning maybe some educational sessions and in, in housing help. And and Sponheimer was saying, you know, I think that something like this, some outreach, maybe proactive outreach, um, before somebody has to respond to this situation, maybe could could be you know a, a small solution. Mm-hmm. And, and Cassidy, you said here the uh, uh, Esteban family, Natalia Esteban eventually won the title back, uh, but they lost uh, a number of possessions, family heirlooms in the home as well. That had to be painful. It was, and and that was kind of a moment, you know, that in the interview, I kind of had to sit back of, oh, wow, because Maria was just saying, you know, her mom was asking, well, what about pictures of, you know, my grandson? You know, can, can I have those? And and Maria's response, you know, as hard as it was, you know, I'm I'm sorry, mom, you know, it's it's gone, you know, we we don't have it anymore, um, and so that was just you know anecdotal from what um they shared with me, but yeah, it makes you really step back and think, oh wow, like 
you know, what would you do if you didn't have those pictures anymore? Yeah. And did uh, Cassidy, uh, and I want to ask Natalie this as well, but couldn't um, uh, Maria Kendall and uh, uh, Larry Colton, um, going to who went to court for Natalia Esteban, couldn't they um, seek damages or something from Catherine Gooding? Did they have that choice? Did they do it? So they they did not. Um, they just they simply they did sell the house and then got um, sold the house for fifty thousand dollars and just you know took that so that Natalia could retire um, in in some financial comfort. Um, but other than that, they they really seem like they are ready to just move on. Mm-hmm. Natalie, could there have been repercussions for Catherine Gooding in in this case legally? Yes, absolutely. They could have brought a claim a claim against her. It would have been a trespass claim initially, and then damages for theft of this property. Mm-hmm. Title that... rested in Natalia and the Estebans, and so there was no justification for Catherine to be on this property mm-hmm. and to dispose of the property. Is that still a possibility now, or is that door closed legally? I think they settled the case, if I'm not mistaken. And so with a settlement, I'm sure that they resolved that outside of the courtroom. Cassidy, go ahead. You you said they did close the case? Settled? They did settle it. She was correct, yes. Okay. Um, This is a fascinating case. In the the few minutes we have remaining, uh, I want to, Cassidy, hear your your reflections on reporting uh, in this. This all started back in the summer of 2021 with an email that you received, I understand? Yeah, it actually, well, it actually started out with a very long text that I did not know what to make sense of. Um, As I had (laughs) mentioned before, I did not know before this process what a quiet title is. Um, And so I kind of led from one thing to another, from a text to a call to a series of emails to then series of records requests to series of interviews, you know, so it was like a domino effect of, and it all just started one day me sitting on the couch and receiving a text. Um, So... Yes, and you're correct. It did start back in last summer, so I have aged since this story <laughs> has started, just to give you an idea. <laughs> what what were some of the biggest challenges here that perhaps accelerated your aging process? <laughs> well, some of, some of the things was obviously, which is why I so much appreciate Natalie's um, help in really understanding what the law is. Um, I did not go to law school. It's not a secret. Um, so a lot of interviews a lot of um, research was simply about trying to understand real estate law in a, in a very short amount of time, like what Natalie already mentioned. You know, people go to years of school for this. Um, so trying to do that research and doing those interviews to try to understand this law was definitely, it was a challenge. Um, but obviously, you know, now I can confidently say, hey, I know what a quiet title petition is. Yeah, yeah, and and but uh, I have to assume over the months of of working on this story, there had to have been low points uh, when perhaps did you ever wonder whether it was worth the investment of your your time and energy? I uh, I don't know how you did this, Ben, but you just read my mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, there were plenty of moments where I felt like maybe I was in a rut, um, or maybe I didn't know where to go from here, which is why I so much appreciate. Um, in fact, a River to River producer. Uh, Zach Smith actually even ha- helped me through records requests and um, news director Michael Leland in the Midwest newsroom 
all of this team behind me, it wasn't just a single effort. Um, it was it was everybody helping out. And they were the ones that really helped me through those ruts or through those low points. Um, so I, I can't tell all of them how much I appreciate them. Right. And it's a good reminder to everyone listening, especially contributing listeners to IPR, that this is what uh, this is part of what your money is is going towards here. This uh, magnificent um, uh, investigative journalism, uh, in this case, from from Cassidy Arena. Law professor Natalie Linner of Drake University. Do you think this will result in a, a change in law in Iowa law here? I'm not sure if it will result in a change of law, but I hope it starts the conversation about what's reasonable for notice in today's world, especially with a petitioner that doesn't or a defendant that doesn't speak English. I think Cassidy's work here has been tremendous and incredible to tell the story of someone who lacks a loud voice in our society. So thank you so much, Cassidy, for doing this work. Oh, wow, thank you. Uh, Cassidy, remind us, uh, uh, listeners now who haven't um, uh, listened to your story, their interests are piqued. How do they find your story? How do they listen to it? Uh, yeah, you can. One way you can listen to it is going on Iowa Public Radio. Uh, the headline is called This Family Almost Lost Their Home Over Iowa's Little Known Quiet Title Law. Um, so you can listen online there. You can also go back and listen to um, Iowa Public Radio's Here First podcast um, back on February 8th. Okay. Thank you very much. To find that report, go to iowapublicradio.org. Cassidy Arena covers Iowa's Latino and Spanish-speaking communities for IPR. And uh, uh, Drake University law professor uh, Natalie Linner, thank you so much for joining us as well and being part of uh, helping out with this investigative reporting. Uh, Natalie and Cassidy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today, you've been listening to an Encore edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.